Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Uh, hey everybody, welcome to uh, another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. We're here today to discuss identity and reputation. Uh, and I'm here with a very exciting guest, Dandelion. Will you please uh, introduce yourself? Uh, hi, uh, I'm Dandelion. I'm a software engineer working on a reputation-based project called SourceCred, which is focused on uh, on creating reputation and identity for open source developers. And I use uh, they, them pronouns. And I'm very glad to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And uh, Dan, give a little of the history of of, uh, of SourceCred, what, uh, what inspired you to start it and what, uh, what problem have you set out to solve? Uh, absolutely. So I've actually been thinking about identity and reputation for a long time. Uh, about two, two and a half years ago, I was reflecting on how having a, a legible reputation system could really just help people collaborate, help people know that they can trust each other, help move people into like, like building long-term relationships more easily. And at the time, I really wanted to build a page rank based reputation system where you could kind of like, see based on who you trust, who are the people who you trust in turn transitively. Uh, and the trouble was I, I started thinking about how to build this and I was thinking maybe it'll be like kind of like Yelp or Facebook. And it wound up being super dystopian. It was kind of like a Black Mirror episode when I really played it out. So I, I put that on the shelf for a couple of years, went into some unrelated stuff in, in AI. And then uh, a couple of months ago, I was thinking about how now that we have these crypto tokens, there's this possibility to reward open source developers where maybe instead of laboring kind of in the shadows without without getting any any monetary reward, open source developers could start to earn cryptocurrencies related to the projects they're directly working on. And when you start to think about this, you kind of need some sort of reputation system to figure out, given that you're going to say give crypto tokens and say Ethereum, how would you decide which developers actually deserve the credit for having made really important contributions to Ethereum? And that's where I think you need a reputation system that allows you to have the community come together and decide who do we think is reputable, who has contributed a lot of value in certain parts of the project. Uh, and the goal of SourceCred essentially is to build out a reputation system like that so that for a given open source project, we can answer the question, who deserves credit for working on it? Yeah. And what, let's dig a little bit deeper for our audience who may not be as, as familiar. What, what do you think are the sort of major problems uh, of, I, I, like, behind identity and reputation that we currently have today? Well, I think that reputation, like, it's it's really, it's not a very legible system. You know, I know that you've also read seeing, like, the states. So I think a lot about, like, how, whether things are, are externally. Right now, everyone has sets of people that they trust. Uh, but it's very hard to figure out who are the people who your friends trust and who are the people who maybe, like, everyone in your community trusts. And if you're in a very small community, if you're living in a, a classical small town, then the informal reputation network maybe scales to include everyone. So you can just kind of walk around and feel like you trust everyone you see because you know that you're enmeshed in all these overlapping social relationships. But once you're in a big city and you don't necessarily have visibility on who these other people are, you know, you may walk by someone who actually is really trustworthy. And maybe you have this like deep trust relationships where your friends all trust this person, but you maybe just won't discover that and you can't, you kind of lose the opportunity to interact with them. Uh, and in the absence of being able to scale these sort of organic decentralized reputation networks, I think we've come to rely on centralized actors instead. So, for example, like if I have trouble figuring out whether a scientist is credible, maybe I'll depend on the fact that, oh, they have a PhD from Harvard or they're a professor at Harvard. 
And now because Harvard has this legible reputation, I'm able to figure out that people associated with it are reputable. Uh, and similarly, maybe like the bank uses its, its centralized position to be able to mediate economic transactions and act as a uh, surrogate for actually trusting the people you're directly working with. But I think that with, with technology, we have the ability to create these decentralized reputation networks, and that will be a lot more empowering to individuals vis-a-vis institutions. And continue to like paint a picture of, of how the world would be different if something like SourceCrest scales, like if we do have a decentralized reputation, like how, how will how will the world be different as we currently understand it? So I think that it would it would really manifest in a lot of different ways. Uh, I think one that I would really like to see is just like a higher. I would like it if it's easier to trust the people around you in physical space. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're just like walking down the street, you especially if you're in a big city, if it's at night, everyone is sort of a shadowy figure, and you maybe don't really know whether they are trustworthy. And I think it'd be cool if we had this ability to easily see, okay, this person actually fits into all these communities they're connected to. So maybe now I can just be a little bit more relaxed. Maybe if I'm thinking about like doing some kind of like economic interaction with them, I don't need to recourse to having a credit card company who will act as intermediary to fraud. Maybe I can trust trust them directly. Maybe you don't need big institutions to like platform scientists to know that their views are good. Maybe you could just see that like the people who you trust to know climate science have also that this person's reputable. Zooming back a little bit, you mentioned le- legibility and seeing like a state uh, for for the. Listeners who haven't read Seeing Like a State, a great book by, by James Scott, can you give a little context to to what you mean by legibility and perhaps how that book has influenced how you see identity? Totally. So Seeing Like a State is a really interesting book that's basically saying how in the past couple centuries we've had these modernist viewpoints that are really focused on sort of like scientific, explicitly rational organizations of the world and how that's empowered, in this case, state actors. So uh, a great example is is scientific forestry. So, you know, forests, they are these really complex, illegible ecosystems. There's all these crazy things going on. There's all these different species of plant. There are all these different species of tree. And there is a certain drive by centralized actors to try and make the world legible. In the case of forests, this meant planting like regular grids, like the exact kind of tree that has the maximum lumber yield. And it was thought that this would lead to a much more efficient forest. Uh, and as, as you might expect, this led to like actually sort of ecological catastrophes uh, a couple decades down the line. So in a way, seeing like a state is a really cautionary tale of attempts to create legibility from a top down, an attempt to use the power of the state to rationalize the world. Uh, but I don't think that all legibility is necessarily like bad or even coercive. You know, the legibility that Google Maps has has done, where Google Maps is not like imposing saying, every town shawl like restructure itself to meet my perfectly orderly plan it just kind of goes and finds the world as it is but makes that legible so that now it's much more much easier to travel so my hope is that where you know you might imagine like a centralized approach to reputation is something like a credit score where everyone gets assigned one specific number and it's an objective number that is created from on high and they can't you know directly influence and i would rather have sort of a local like contextual subjective legibility where everyone has a reputation network and they can kind of see based on their own relationships and their own beliefs, who are the people who they are trusted and aligned with, but in a way that's responsive at a local level rather than just created at a global level. Right. And it's, is this a phenomenon where I think, you know, seeing like say talks a little bit about it, where you used to be able to get up from one village and go to another village and, and start over. Whereas now, if, you know, you've got something that you've 
you know, you can't run away from it. SEO follows you, follows you forever. And we were, well, actually, I mean, one thing you mentioned earlier is that you were concerned that it, you know, one version of this could veer into a sort of dystopian black mirror, like future. When does it sort of veer it? Like, what's the, what's the line where it's like, here's the optimal level of decentralized identity repetition versus like, oh man, this is, this has gone too far. What what does that look? where, Where is that? So there's a particular Black Mirror episode called Nosedive that really like gets us on the nose, which is that there's this single system uh, and it's kind of like Yelp for people and everyone is perpetually rating each other on one to five stars. And there are these like really big like financial and like social incentives to have a high rating. You, know, you get invited to the nice parties and get a discount on your rent if you are desirable and have a nice rating. And then it's very explicitly being used as a tool of control. There's a scene where the, the protagonist goes to the airport and is just really stressed and is like kind of starting to like rant and let, let go of some anger. And the system immediately like puts her in double damage mode. So it's like anything you do, like the airport is able to uh, punish you by tanking your social reputation. And I think in my mind, what makes this so dystopian is that it's, it's completely outside of the control of the individual characters. They don't really have any leverage on the system. It's just being used to corral and, and manipulate them. Uh, and there's this scene where there's this truck driver who has a really low rating and because she's not like fitting into the expected social norms. And she's actually really cool. She's one of the only like genuine characters that we meet in this whole episode. And so I think the difference between the centralized Yelp for people and like a more utopian decentralized solution is that in the centralized system, if you disagree with the like reputational semantics of the, the global power structure that set the system up, you're just kind of shit out of luck. And I imagine with the decentralized system, you can go and say, hey, actually, I just totally disagree with all these reputations. This is like all based on like fake, like pandering to Instagram followers or whatever. So I'm going to set up my own instance of the reputation network. It'll be our like grungy anarchist reputation network. And everyone who wants can come and join this network instead with me. And that would, that would create kind of freedom. Uh, I think maybe also being able to reset your identity and kind of like create a new pseudonym, start clean, start being a different person. Uh, I would much rather if reputation is about the opportunity to build up a great reputation rather than like saying one wrong thing on Twitter and then having people hound you for the rest of your life over it. Say more about that. I did read this book. Um, so, you, so you've been publicly shamed. Did you read it? Mm, no, I haven't read that. And it's about, you know, follows like 10 different people who've uh, publicly shamed. One was Jonah Lehrer, who's, uh, you know, a New Yorker writer, uh, neuroscientist and self-plagiarized or plagiarized others. And, you know, got sort of, you know, publicly shamed for it. Another was Justine Sacco, the former IAC lead mm. who said uh, on Twitter, like some offhand comment about AIDS. I don't know if you remember, it was like, has Justine landed yeah, yet? I remember that. Hashtag. Yeah. And yeah, so that, that's right. a perfect example. Now, you know, she hasn't, her, her life was really, you know. Uh, she's really suffered for that. So in, in your in your future of the world, when that happens to somebody, what changes? What, what's different about how it currently happens, which is you know, utter shame and you can't run away? <laughs> uh, and that's a that's a really interesting question. So I think the, the first answer is I'm not sure. We do have like people's identities have become these really easy targets. You know, it's just it's not that hard to form an outrage mob and like. Yeah you know, totally like convince a group of people to hate someone based on like the current like dynamics of social media. Back when I was thinking about creating a a sort of reputation protocol, one thing that I was thinking is really having the ability for random strangers to pile on and like trash someone's reputation 
is not really a good ability to have. Uh, I was kind of thinking that rather than being able to unilaterally rate other people, it's like, oh yeah, I also hate this person. Uh, reputation would be more of a mutual agreement where like, maybe Eric, because I'm coming on your podcast, we would both agree to give each other the right to like rate each other on this interaction. So I could like rate you in the context of being a podcast host and you could rate me as a podcast guest. And then, you know, if you did something really inappropriate, then I would have the ability to like rate you for that. But if I went and said, hey, Eric was really bad on this podcast, it wouldn't mean that everyone who likes me or follows me or just dislikes you for some reason could come and like slam on your reputation over that. But I, I think that generally speaking, like our social norms around identity were evolved in an environment in which most people had a really like local identity and mostly would just interact with people that they could actually meet face to face. And this is mediated by all these like, you know, millennia of collective experience and human socialization. Right. So it seems like we need new social norms now. And what we're seeing right now with the internet outrage mobs and people getting like, you know, digitally, digitally grouped is stuff that is happening in this evolutionary period where we just haven't figured out the right ways to behave with this new technology. Right. And do you think it's, is it, we need to change our social norms or we need to change the technology to uh, adapt to our natural behaviors or both? Yeah, I think it's both. I think that society evolves in the context of technological change and technology evolves in the context of social norms and culture. So I think it'll be a co-evolution. Yeah. I, the, the pushback to this is always, yeah, but what about accountability? Like if someone could just start a new pseudonym, how, how do you keep people accountable for their actions? I guess, how do you think about that tension between, you know, accountability, you know, for, for some fear of retribution prevents them from doing certain acts versus at the same time, you know, some of the, these negative effects you, you've outlined from you know, from outrage mobs or that sort of thing. So this is maybe a little bit of a meander, but I think it'll, it'll get to it. One of the things I, I think is kind of weird about Reddit is that it doesn't have any kind of like reputation metric built in in filtering how people's comments get weighted. So if I go to like a crypto subreddit, uh, often I feel like, you know, there are just lots of, of sort of crypto speculators and people just trying to like pump prices in one way or another. And they, they contribute a lot of noise to the discussion. And I kind of wish that it would have a different semantic where you would get karma, not just based on the number of people that voted for your post, but on which people voted for a post. So to use the example of Ethereum, like if I have two posts, one of them got upvoted by a hundred like day old accounts and the other one got voted, upvoted by Vitalik. The comment that got upvoted by Vitalik is probably more relevant to me because he has a lot more reputation in that community. Yeah. Uh, and the way I think about accountability is like, I don't think it's that we should be trying to punish people and make sure that their punishment follows them around until they die. I think it's rather that people who have proven themselves as being like helpful members of the community, people who are contributing, people who are not trolling, should get the privilege of having their comment being like having more visibility, being more boosted. Uh, and so if you choose to like throw away your identity, then you're distinguishable from a troll or like, you know, some Sybil account. And it's going to take a little while to like rebuild a new identity that's valuable. Yeah. How do you think about the sort of sort of inequality of, of social status? <laughs> I guess in, in the sense of you mentioned a, or a reputation, you know, Vitalik got, got a, you know, a lot of rep points, whereas a beginner doesn't. Do you, how do you think about that inequality? And then how do you think about, I guess, the, the, the concept of social mobility through through reputation, the ability to to get to Vitalik level, and, and so like, does it take someone like Vitalik to co-sign you, or how, how do you think about that mobility? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Uh, I would 
just to use use this example of like like how uh, Reddit would work if you had page rank. So I, I'm going to probably use the word page rank a fair amount. So I'll just like sure. give a brief overview of page rank. Page rank is this core algorithm to Google search originally, and it was a way of figuring out which websites are credible or important. With the idea being that a website is important if other important websites link to it. Uh, so this is this is a nice metric and it's hard to game because if I go and create like 10,000 spam websites and have them all linked to my homepage, it won't give very much weight to my homepage because nobody links to the spam websites. But conversely, if like, you know, Wikipedia or maybe Wikipedia isn't the best example, but if like the Stanford University homepage links to my website, then that is a much stronger boost to my website. Uh, and I've often thought that I think this is a really good model for reputation systems in general. So the way that this would work for like inequality is first, uh, I think that having inequality of social status is, is like a pretty natural state of affairs, and I don't think that's something that needs to needs to change per se. Like in the context of a particular community, naturally there are going to be experts in that community, there are going to be well-known figures in that community who will have a really high social status, and someone who's just entering will not. But hopefully, it's a community where if you are like a, contributing meaningful things to the discussion, or you know maybe if it's a dance community, if you're like having rewarding dances with people. If it's like crypto community, if you're like, you know, submitting useful patches to the system or writing good articles about how it will behave, then other people will start voting for you and upvoting your posts. Uh, and then you would start to have more and more status in that context. It is sort of a crazy question, but if, if we imagine a world in which, you know, reputation and social status become eminently quantifiable, we, we can really uh, put mm -hmm. number, numbers to it. Could you envision also a world in which similar to how we have, you know, sort of in income, we sort of assume that, you know, uh, you know, people don't start from equal, equal points. So we try to, you know, make up for it. Could you envision a world in which we say, hey, you know, you were born with some disability or you were born, I don't know, horrendously overweight or something, or I don't know, like unlikely to gain social status. And thus we try to reduce like natural inequalities. That might be a crazy question, but what do you, what do you think about? What changes in the world in which it's eminently quantifiable, and are there any correlations there? Huh. I guess this is like with equivalent being Twitter saying, "Okay, you know, if we detect that you're a bad writer, we're going to like put boost you higher in the in the like suggested followers list to like even things out." Yeah, or something um, like that. you know, I think it really depends on the context. I think that if there's context in which this reputation system, in which a reputation system is being used to like like allocate those things which we consider to be basic human right, then there'd be a good case to try and reduce inequality or equalize it somehow. And like, I think this is why, like, one of the reasons why there'd be a good argument for trying to reduce financial inequality is that right now finances are tied to your ability to live a basic, like, dignified life in our society. And so if, if there are lots of people who, for some, like, reason that is out of their control are not able to get like the resources to live a basically dignified life, then society has a, an interest and perhaps responsibility to fix that. So I think it really just depends on where and why the reputation system is being used. Uh, I think in the short term applications I can imagine, like reputation for who has, enough, who has a lot of cred in helping develop a particular open source project, uh, I don't think there will be necessarily needs to like have equalizing equalizing methods built in. What other, that makes sense. What other books or thinkers or influences would you say have have most shaped your your views and identity and reputation um another interesting question things that come to mind are i think the black mirror episode nosedive has some interesting things to say there there's a cory doctorow book down and out in the magic kingdom that is kind of imagining 
a like post-capitalist reputation economy and how that might work. How might that work? It's been a while since I read the book, but okay. it was kind of people self-organizing into these like collectives that are focused on achieving certain goals. And so the, the collective that it's focused on in the book is like the collective of people maintaining Disneyland in the like post-corporate post-corporate world. There's also, let's see, there's a book Accelerando by Charlie Strauss uh, also kind of has this character sort of like has started optimizing for like his reputation rather than for money. And he's, he's quote unquote a venture altruist, which means he keeps on going away and like coming up with brilliant businesses and business ideas and just giving them away uh, as a sort of like subversive anti-capitalist move. Um, so those are some cool examples. I think also like the original page rank paper is pretty, pretty interesting to read. What, what would like, oh, sorry, one, one more. That's an example is ESR. Uh, the guy who wrote Cathedral on the Bazaar has an essay called Homesteading the Knoosphere, uh, which is spelled N-O-O sphere, S-P-H-E-R-E. And that's one on how open source developers are motivated by like getting reputation or cred among other open source developers uh, for why they do a lot of the work they do. Yeah. You know, we met at a at a dinner where we were discussing Elon Musk's idea to have sort of a reputation system for journalists to keep keep journalists accountable. What now it was a couple months ago now, but what do you think was sort of the most interesting thing that that emerged from that conversation or or that thread surrounding surrounding Elon or, or some of the surrounding conversations that that came from our, from our dinner? You know, there was a lot of interesting discussion. I have trouble choosing any one thing in particular. Uh, I think one of one thing that somebody mentioned is that journalists are really motivated by like you know his his view is that journalists are strongly motivated by getting to see their name in print on the front of a newspaper. And so I guess that would be another argument for the like power of reputation and motivating people's behavior. I, I think that this is something that happens a lot in that we, you know, the economics discipline wants to believe that people are perfectly rational and are pursuing like utility maximization as like mediated by the accumulation of wealth. But it seems to me like many times what people are really trying to get is social status. And it seems like people are pursuing money as their primary objective because we've created a tight coupling between money and social status in our society. But I don't think that's like the necessary root target. Yeah. You think those would be more uncoupled in the future? That would be easier to get social status without, without getting money or vice versa? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my, my utopian ideal would be moving towards something like a universal basic income where people no longer necessarily need money just to, to survive and have the necessary pieces of a dignified life. But then, you know, people could just form into whatever communities they want to engage in, you know, and and kind of pursue like social status and acceptance and a sense of meaning through doing whatever it is that their communities do and care about. Well, one thing I remember for that dinner was, was you sort of describing a world in which you we'll go back to this example of, you know, Mark Andreessen said this tweet about about India that uh, sort of off color and then, <laughs> you know, left Twitter forever. But in, in, in your world, you see him as sort of losing you know, points on his politics reputation, but his, you know, technology reputation being untouched. Can you sort of elaborate on that idea and how you see that changing how we think about identity and reputation? It's almost like compartmentalizing it a little bit. Right. So I often, when I'm kind of thinking about what are the properties that that an legible, explicit reputation system should have, uh, I think that it should be very much based on what happens in the informal, illegible reputation system today. Uh, and I do think that people have pretty compartmentalized reputations. Uh, I maybe care about what Mark Andreessen says about like, you know, business development and like venture capital 
and his political views are just not that interesting to me. If I wanted like get people's political views, I'll find I'll find people on the basis of that filter. Um, I often wish that with Twitter, I kind of wish it were easier to like segregate my identity so that I could have here's the Twitter account or here's like the Twitter handle or whatever that I tweet like source credit and crypto related stuff on. And here's a totally separate Twitter. Maybe it should make separate accounts for this, but here's a different identity that it has my political views or my views on dance or aesthetic or whatever. And there's, it's not necessarily the case that if you like my views on crypto stuff that you should care at all about any of my other like feeds, you might want to follow that, but you might not. Yeah. So I, I think that like it makes the, the idea, this is something that I saw on your Twitter about kind of the idea of the individual as an abstraction and kind of a lossy one. And I think that breaking the the monolith of the individual and viewing people as mixtures of different sets of, you know, they have a different identities depending on the community they're in or in the context, uh, maybe just depending on the time of day, they're kind of like slightly different people. And it might be interesting to see how to like factor both people's legible reputations and identities and also their sense of self into different pieces. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. I've been thinking a lot about this it. totally unrelated, but like tokenized securities and, you know, fractionalization of, of like real estate and, and, you know, giving a lot of people a chance to have ownership in different ways. And this is sort of, you know, the concept of, the concept of, you know, quote unquote, be yourself, like is a, uh, or, you know, it's pretty like deep in our sense of understanding that, that we are, you know, we have different wants and needs, but, you know, deep down we have this, this authentic self that encompasses all of them. It'd be pretty, it would be pretty, pretty enormous change, you know, of our sort of collective understanding if we were now having, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of sort of, you know, reputations and sub reputations. And it could almost be like infinite in some capacity. Right. So just, just from like my personal dimension, part of the reason I use the name Dandelion is because it splits very nicely into Dandy and Lion. And I see Dandy and Lion as like, in some sense, two distinct people. Uh, Lion is like very like, you know, competitive, analytical, he's mostly the one interested in this crypto stuff. And Dandy is much more like playful and goofy and curious. And like, by giving different names to different parts of myself, it's almost like I'm more clearly able to quote unquote, be myself and what that means in a particular moment. Uh, and I, I know, I know some close friend who also like their identity is kind of split into a masculine and a feminine part uh and those two identities really feel like different people they like speak in different registers they have different like sets of relationships they view the worlds in different ways you know i just think it's like it's interesting there's no a priori reason why a single like human body needs to correspond only to a single identity or single set of relationships or single way of viewing the world uh, I think that many people, if you look at it closely, you know, whether they're at work or whether they're at play, they wind up being subtly, but importantly, different people. Yeah. And can you, perhaps confused because, because of it, can you sort of, is, is this related to what you said at the beginning about sort of using the they, them pronoun? And can you sort of educate the, the audience a little bit about, you know, what that means, what that means to you? Oh, totally. I would, I would love to do so. So I live in the Bay Area where the like, there is a lot of like questioning of like gender constructs in the communities that I'm in. Uh, so on the one hand, a lot of people are using they pronouns because they find that like the set of like gender expectation or like the social construct of gender of like being either a man or a woman doesn't really apply very well to them. In my personal case, I kind of use they them in like a plural sense, which is to say 
I, I feel like I do have these different parts of myself. Like I said, Lion and Dandy. Uh, and like most of the people, like Lion uses he pronouns because, and this is kind of Lion speaking, like Dandy speaks in a different vocal register. Yeah, I, I view it as like using they, them pronouns is more honest to myself and it's not requiring that I fit only the box of like a particular like kind of like masculine identity that's most comfortable to show to the world so it just feels it feels more honest in that sense um was that reasonably clear yeah and do you how might that manifest in in say the twitter of your dreams for example would you have a dandy twitter would you have a lion twitter dandy line of totally i've totally thought about that yeah because like i i I, um, you know if dandy had a twitter which i've thought about creating it would be a lot more off the cuff. It would be a lot more kind of like playful and like joking around with concepts. Whereas like, if you read my actual Twitter, it's mostly just like, you know, saying like real analytical thoughts about source cred or crypto or reputation or something else. Uh, and it kind of respects the, the difference in personalities where like, I lion, I've actually also come up with, you know, now we're going really off the rails, but I've come up with specialized pronouns so that when I'm communicating, I can specify whether the me that is speaking is lion or is standing. But so when <laughs> I know this is just getting super weird. amazing. So the pronouns I came up with, uh, and this is my friend and I as well, we, we kind of developed these together is K based pronouns. So, okay. So now I'm really, I'm really just going to go. Oh, don't worry this. about it. Please keep going. Yeah. If, if you feel comfortable. Yeah, totally. This is, this is something I've been wanting to express. I actually like, I wrote up a whole Twitter thread, like explaining this, like, dual dual part identity and i never actually posted it but i'm glad to get a chance to talk about it a bit so from the top down i've found when i've been looking for like dual identities and people and myself uh, i think it maps pretty well onto the left brain right brain distinction uh and also maps pretty well into the concept of yin and yang so in myself i would say lion is like a masculine side uh, a verbal side very good with words very like kind of competitive and analytical uh, and lion inhabits my left eye but my right arm which is kind of weird uh, and I can I've had moments where I can just kind of feel like lion like checks out of whatever situation I'm in and then my right arm will just feel like it goes kind of numb and in contrast dandy speaks in a higher vocal register than I'm speaking right now is a lot more like kind of like physically aware uh, a lot less verbal when Mandy speaks. It tends to like be like, you know, there's that test where you can rate whether someone is speaking or writing or whatever at like a seventh grade level or like a college level or what have you. And I think that if you were to take segments of Dandy speaking, it would be like at a much lower grade level. They tend to prefer just simpler words and more direct statements. But also Dandy is much more emotionally aware, much more like emotionally in tune, kind of less of like, you know, I'm occasionally like very detached and kind of an ass and dandy usually isn't. Uh, and I think also in the yin and yang kind of conception, yang is like the outward force, like acting on the world. Uh, and I think that corresponds to lion or to the masculine side in my case. And dandy is the yin side. And so I gave these, these different pronouns, which is the K sounds so like Kai am lion. Uh, ku are like the masculine side of your entity, maybe, or the, the yang or masculine side, and z side, z, uh, pronouns, so like dandy could say, which is interesting, because now, like, even saying that, like, kind of brought dandy out a little bit more, although this whole speaking into a podcast is a domain where, right. like, Kai feel much more comfortable showing up in this. Dandy is much, a much shyer, like, personality. Yeah, I just wondered, so there, there is sort of a, 
like you know the, the the solutions to problems of identity one includes like you know strive for even more precision mm. and uh, and another is perhaps surrender <laughs> um or or sort of like reject it a, a little bit in in some sense and i right. i guess i'm curious if you've thought about it or met people who have or yeah what your thoughts are on that on that concept so i think first off just like off the cuff i think there's a lot of truth to that and i think that we over-index on the individual and under-index on like the community and the context. Yeah. Uh, like one of the things that, that perpetually fascinates me is how often scientific developments seem to be simultaneously discovered by multiple groups around the world. So, you know, calculus has Newton and Leibniz. Uh, I was just reading about how like the phone was kind of simultaneously invented by Alexander Graham Bell and some dude whose name I forget because he didn't win the like PR war around the phone. <laughs> Uh, but there's just tons of this stuff, and I feel like maybe that's because... Okay, so the brain, as we know, is this incredible, incredible computational thing, which drives all of our experience and our interaction with the world, that is actually composed of an enormously parallel network of neurons that are all communicating with each other simultaneously. And I kind of imagine if we could shrink down to the level of a neuron and like talk to a neuron, whatever that means, that neuron would probably have, might have a really like self-centered view of what's happening. So the fact that the brain is going and doing these like enormous fantastical things, it would just look at like, oh, yeah, I did a great job like firing just now because like the neuron next to me fired. And then I was like, oh, oh, that's kind of weird. But, you know, I'm going to fire, too. And then I fired and all these other neurons like fire, too, because like I had such a good idea firing. And then if you were to go and be like, but did you realize there's this like massive global correlation in which like your tiny little action corresponded to the human like thinking a thought or saying something uh the neuron would probably not have any perspective into that maybe we just like talk it up to like fate or like the universe or something and i kind of wonder like if if we are like individual neurons in a brain what are the thoughts of the city what are the thoughts of the collective that we're composing and it ha is happening at a level of abstraction that's kind of inaccessible to us uh so yeah this 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 all is like pretty out there but i guess i agree that like i think that just focusing on the individual super hardcore is we're probably missing a lot of the bigger picture yeah i think that for myself like reifying these different like sub identities within me is kind of fun it's kind of rewarding it like lets me like more clearly feel kinds of experiences that i think i used to like hide away within myself i think that that for me kind of historically and how my identities progressed i think that i was originally like dandy just the sort of like innocent like child it's fun to be nice to people kind of like read science fiction books you know goof around and i was not socially savvy and i just kind of got picked on a lot and it was just kind of like messy social situations and then at some point of course i'm playing world of warcraft but at some point i figured <laughs> out how to you know play these analytical games and how to figure out social status and how to like you know maneuver around in social contexts and like you know, build coalitions and make sure I was on the side of the popular kids and not on the side of the unpopular kids. And that kind of corresponded to Lion, like becoming a, a major identity of mine. Right. But it just felt so much safer and so much more like in control to be this like more masculine, more analytical character all the time. And so I kind of like lost or like buried away Dandy. And then this process of rediscovery, I've also been like rediscovering parts of myself. I've been starting to remember more like what it felt like to be a child. Uh, I've been starting to like remember how those relationships felt to me, uh, how like how it felt to like be close to my brother as a kid, as opposed to be like the person that I am now in the context of my brother as he is now. So I, I think that 
even though like in some sense like all identities are an abstraction and all abstractions are like false because they aren't like literally the world it still is it's kind of empowering kind of fun to come up with a more complicated set of abstractions rather than the simple like i am a single person abstraction totally what do you think about the concept of psychedelics and identity if if at all is it has informed your your concept of self man great question uh yeah i would say that you know if i did psychedelics they would have played a huge role in the way that i've like conceptualized being a person uh, I think that there's something really like profound for me about doing psychedelics the first time and realizing that like you go through the world experiencing reality every day and you have this experience of it and you start to believe that that experience is the world. And then you do psychedelics for the first time and then all of a sudden the experience of the world is radically different. And for me, it made me realize I was like, wow, like if, you know, if doing this drug can make the world feel radically different, that means that I wasn't actually like experiencing like quote unquote, the world is this like monolithic reality this whole time. I was just having one particular interpretation of it, one particular experience. Yeah. And so I, I think that for me, it's like doing, doing psychedelics is very eye opening and like getting to experience different modes of identity, different ways of being in the world. Uh, I remember I had one particular trip, where I was telling my friend, like, wow, you know, at the time I went by Daniel. So I was like, wow, Daniel Monet is, like, not a real thing. Daniel Monet is, like, this fictitious le- legal identity. Daniel Monet consists of, like, words written on passports and, like, digital balances and bank accounts. And it's, like, this, like, almost, like, legal fiction, like a suit of armor that is, like, this not a living thing. It's just this, like, you know, machine. But it's a machine that I inhabit and, like, structures the way that I interact with the world. Yeah. Yeah. So TLDR, yeah, yeah, drugs have definitely shaped how I how I <laughs> think about this stuff. I mean, you know, one thing that's making me think a little bit is the uh, my. So I'm I'm half Israeli, half Colombian, but I oh, I'm half Israeli, half Korean. Wow, that's amazing. I look a lot like my dad, as in I look Israeli, mm-hmm. and my brother looks very Colombian. We 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 don't look you know we don't look related, and he's you know he's brown and I'm white. You know, in terms of how we how we mm-hmm. look to the world. And it's interesting that I've seen how how people treat us differently, you know, b- because of it. And it's also just I I was supposed to be named uh, Kazumi or Kazume or mm. something. My my dad is really into sort of Japanese like comic books, <laughs> and huh. I wonder, oh, how would my life be different if I had a, you know, how would people treat me different if I had a Japanese name instead of you know Eric Torenberg? But yeah, it is interesting in terms of how we like present how our own identity is thereby or other people confirm it onto ourselves. Yeah, while we're here, I'll just make a, a plug for choosing one's own name. Uh, I was born, I was given the legal like birth name, Daniel Willie Lee Manet. And I never particularly identified with this. Just growing up, I was like, man, like the name Daniel, like there's always two other Daniels in my class. Like my brother had the middle name Jason. And I was kind of resentful that he had gotten a middle name that I liked better than my first name. And then it was actually you know, on a, a particularly great psychedelic trip uh, at a dance party in the woods when I had this, this like chance encounter that gave me the name Dandelion. Uh, and it's just so much more fun to like have chosen your own name. I can like wear it with so much more pride. I tell people like, hi, I'm Dandelion. And I'm really like giving them something of myself. And like, also it's a better conversation starter as opposed to like, oh, like here's the name that my parents gave me before anybody knew who I would even be, you know? Yeah. 
what what role does religion play in your life if any i'm pretty pretty agnostic like yeah. none of the organized religions like make that much sense to me mm-hmm. uh i kind of i kind of wish that i had a religion i feel like that would be kind of nice it would have to be one that like takes evolution into account and like is is a nice like computational elegance to it yeah well it, as soon as i as you said you know make your own name the first thing i thought of was like oh also religions are often given to us and people aren't really innovating there H- have you thought about doing that so now we're also getting to like like you know trip stuff i think about while tripping i find i find it really 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 fascinating that as far as i can tell the universe starts and it's got these like sort of simple like deterministic rules and if you look at these rules you know i'm going to think in classical physics because i don't really know quantum physics but you know you have like you know particles and particles bounce around and they interact according to these different forces and you say, okay, that's fine. That's a humdrum. And then it turns out that you run the system forward for some amount of time and you start getting like life. You start getting these creatures competing. You start getting all these different like ecological niches. You start getting these super complicated ecologies where like these dozens of different kinds of life forms are all like semi harmoniously, like cooperative, competitively creating a working system. You get the development of intelligence. You get all these cultures. You get science. You get technology. It's like really wild that all of this came from apparently simple physical rules and that this is on a process that's accelerated. Uh, I kind of imagine that I, I wish that I had some quantitative metric for what I will call interestingness, where like it's pretty clear that the Earth is more interesting than Mars because there's just a lot more going on in it. There's, you know, it's like cultures and societies and ecosystems versus like wind and sand. Uh, and I think that the Earth is becoming more interesting over time. I think that this, like, metric that I imagine would show that, like, a complex, like, technological society with computers and culture and TV shows is more interesting than, like, a Middle Ages society or, like, a hunter-gatherer world. And if if there was anything I was going to worship, if I could figure out how to properly worship this process by which the universe is, like self like unfolding more complexity and more consciousness that would probably be the thing that i would find most sacred but i think that probably in my mind like the mode of worship would be trying to help that like consciousness and like complexity evolve in a way that is sustainable and like not not going to fall off a cliff in some unpleasant way so maybe in that sense i am like like acting as a believer even if i can't quite articulate what that means yeah i like that i like that way of thinking about it acting like a believer even though I'm not sure exactly what it means is assuming back out a little bit. <laughs> the, if you, if Jack Dorsey said, Hey, uh, Dan here's Twitter. Uh, and you know, it was so that you could do anything you wanted with Twitter. How would you, you know, revise the right, revise the product to, uh, and we'll extend it to Facebook too, Twitter or Facebook to sort of bring about the world you wish to see. Can I say, can I choose Reddit actually? Cause yeah, I, I've Reddit. got thoughts on, on start for Reddit. So, so for Reddit, <laughs> As, as I said, I think it'd be interesting. Uh, your listeners may be familiar with the Eternal September. Basically, back when Usenet was was an early thing as far as internet communication technology went, every September there would be an influx of new users as like a new group of freshmen came into the the universities, and the norms around the discussion and conversation would temporarily collapse. Uh, until over the course of the intervening months, all the new users kind of got onboarded, learned the norms of the space, uh, and started participating in the way that 
they were expected to. And then there came some particular September, which was the eternal September, because so many people joined using it that it was just impossible for the culture to assimilate all the new people and the norms sort of like permanently shifted or degraded. And I'm really interested in how can communities scale without succumbing to this. Uh, And I think if you look at like Bitcoin, you have an example where uh, I understand that the early like Bitcoin forms were had a higher level of discourse. There was often people who were like more kind of technically aware of what was going on with the protocol and making more substantive conversation. Uh, But today, you know, the last time I tried to go on like the Bitcoin Reddit, it's just like trolls and flame wars and stuff. And so I think that just making a simple, you know, the one easy fix that Reddit doesn't want you to know about, uh, I think that switching to a reputation system where in any individual community, your ability to upvote and give karma is proportional to how much reputation you already have in that community. So that if you have like 10,000 new stock puppet accounts or 10,000 like just newbies appear on the forum, they don't have the weight of numbers to like totally shift where the discussion is going. I think that'd be a really interesting experiment to run. More broadly about like Twitter, it seems to me that I would really like a technological solution for figuring out how to just reduce the like hate brigading. You know, I would like it if if Twitter could be a space where you need to be somehow like connected to my social network or trusted by people that I trust in order to comment on my posts so that, you know, like people who are popular won't like necessarily have floods of Nazis or trolls or whatever, like putting really incendiary and unpleasant stuff on their posts. Uh, but I'm not exactly sure what the, what the fix is there. Uh, I just think that's what we should be working for. Yeah. Yeah. This has been a, this has been a fascinating illuminating conversation. Where can people learn more about SourceCred and what should people Stay tuned for. So as far as SourceCred, we have a, a website now, sourcecred.io, which has a prototype. The basic idea is we, we're trying to build this system, uh, which is a decentralized system that anyone can use to uh, assign cred within their open source. So for example, like, do, do you have any, any GitHub projects that you're particularly involved in? Me, not personally, but I, I know that there, there are lots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so just to use SourceCred itself as an example yes. then. We, the SourceCred algorithm runs on SourceCred and it looks over all of the issues and pull requests and comments and so forth uh, and uses that to try and distill who, which people have been most involved in contributing to the project. And the hope is that as this evolves, it'll be like in the very long term, a way to allocate like crypto tokens. Think of it sort of like what if open source projects could have equity? Uh, obviously be pretty different than equity because equity represents control over a corporation and you it's harder to control open source projects in that way. But uh, the long-term vision is hopefully we can start giving people tokens of like reward or reputation or something in the projects that they've worked in the short term. We just want to try and make a, an interesting, interesting tool to take a look at to start to play with the cool toy and maybe use for like issue prioritization. Like maybe the more cred you have in a project the more weight you get in voting which issues are important. Yeah, if you're if you're maintaining an open source project, you can even like come try out the prototype on your own project and tell us what you think by checking it out on sourcecred.io and joining our Discord to say hello. Awesome. And uh, lastly, how, how do you see sort of your product evolving? Uh, SourceCred evolving over time? Like this is the first iteration. Like what's after that? So the, the game plan is one, we're just right now building this tool that anyone can run on their project. Uh, and come up with a credit attribution. One of the things that I'm really want, I, I, it'll take a long time to realize like the long-term vision of source cred. 
you know, the long-term vision involves these like crypto tokens we're able to issue and give out. But I want to try and get users, get it in the hands of users and delivering some real value as soon as possible. Uh, so the, the kind of evolution is first, we're going to build it into a good tool for issue prioritization and just keeping track of like, you know, you have 900 open issues. How do you prioritize which ones are important? And how do you reward people for working on them and triaging them? Because that's something projects often have a shortage of. Uh, and I'd like to see, you know, we're kind of making it easy to deploy. So if you have an open source project, you can just like turn on your own source grid instance and maybe host it on your GitHub pages. And I think that that's just like a very interesting direction to go in trying to engage open source communities in having a way to give out reputation. Then in the longer term, maybe in like a year or two, as we start to have real confidence that the reputation allocation is both like fair and hard to game, then the idea is to create these crypto assets we're calling grain. And you can think of grain as an economic primitive for open source projects. It represents getting some value for having supported a project. It respects the open source dependency graph, which is to say, let's say that SourceCred is using React, which it does. Then if SourceCred issues grain in SourceCred, then we should also give some of that grain to whoever has grain in React. So you kind of get rewarded for building infrastructure projects that other projects are building on top of. Uh, the idea is like we need a, we need an ecosystem that can fund the like unsexy but core infrastructure that everyone develops on. Uh, and I think that's what like flowing rewards along the dependency graph gets for you. And then the idea is that in, in the medium term, it will be a good way for people to support open source projects. So right now, let's say there's a project you want to support. You know, they may have an open collective page, in which case you can pay like the maintainers directly. But it would be kind of nice if there were an incentive mechanism or funding mechanism that directly flows to everyone who helps out on the project and not just like the one or two people who are maintainers. So the vision is that once you are creating Grain, which is a transferable crypto token, and issuing it to everyone who's helping out with the project, someone who wants to support the project can go and buy that Grain on the market. And by buying Grain, they're directly or indirectly flowing value to all of the developers of the project. And then it's it's like both like, you know, you've kind of sponsored the project and you even have this token that proved that you were a supporter of the project. Uh, and then if that project has any kind of scarce reward to give out, you know, maybe it's prioritized bug fixing or in the limit, maybe it's a crypto project that eventually creates some sort of coin and they want to give out the coin to their supporters. They can do that by flowing those scarce rewards to whoever has uh, demonstrated they've supported the project by buying grain in it. Awesome. Alan, this is a great place to great place to stop. Thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me and all these all these weird far ranging uh, conversations. <laughs> quite a bit. Yeah. Totally. I really enjoyed it, Dan. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.